Hello and welcome back to the Full Cast and Crew podcast. I'm your host, Jason Silo, and I'm thrilled to be joined this week by Ernest Lupinacci. Ernest Lupinacci is a writer, producer, brand consultant, creative director, and former top flight ad guy who created iconic campaigns for Whedon and Kennedy in their heyday. He did the Shatner Priceline ads, as well as numerous other campaigns featuring nostalgic recalibrations of showbiz lifers like Robert Goulet, Jerry Stiller, Evil Knievel, and Tony Randall. Ads that really struck a chord with children of 70s TV childhoods, such as myself. Legendary commercial director slash madman Joe Pitka said of Ernest, quote, I called him Rico since he didn't look like an Ernest. Ernest himself said of himself, quote, in my family of five siblings, I am known as the quiet, dumb one. That will be disproved here today. He's also more recently the author, along with illustrator Alec Ogle, of an excellent graphic novel called The Godfather Gang in Hollywood, Everything is Personal. And he was a producer on the Paramount Plus Godfather series you probably saw called The Offer. It was actually through Ernest's ad work, I believe, that he first entered the Godfather studio executive Robert Evans's charmingly, perhaps self-serving reality distortion field. We'll discuss that here today. Ernest's Godfather credentials also include appearing as a child along with other members of his family in The Godfather 2. I can't quite remember how Ernest appeared on my radar here at Full Cast and Crew, but I think at some point I became a fan of his enigmatic, somewhat sparse Instagram account. And I chased him down, and now we find ourselves about to undertake one of the most important two-film episodes we could possibly choose to do without really knowing each other at all. So Ernest, in the fitting spirit of the glorious, happy accident that turned out to be the godfather, welcome to the Full Casting Crew podcast. Jason, that is about as extraordinary of an introduction of as, as, I, as I could have ever hoped or dreamed of. It, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. Um, I'm a huge fan of the podcast. I think you do an extraordinary job with it. And um, these are, in fact, important conversations. So um, um, I'm honored to be part of one of them, if not one of the most important ones. Yeah. But um, yes, I'm a, I'm also a child of the 70s. Um, I have an intense love affair with pop culture. And, you know, these are the things I love thinking about, um, talking about, and when I'm lucky enough, actually getting paid to uh, kind of conjure up or, mm -hmm. and I like your idea of the, the recalibration. Um, a friend of mine once wrote an article about my body of work called the old boys club, <laughs> because it had dawned on him that if you were an octogenarian and uh, I set my sights on you, there was a very good chance you were going to show up in one of my Nike commercials or ESPN commercials um, yes, um, I've always joked around that I sort of responsibly, selfishly would look at a brief and say, who do I want to meet? Where do I want to go? What do I want to learn? And uh, it kind of, it more, more often than not, it paid off, worked out well for everyone. 
you know, in that article that I, that you mentioned, I read something that really resonated with me because I think I share this with you. You said that of those types of performers uh, who, you know, who maybe a different type of eyes would look at and say, oh, these people are, you know, has-beens or washed up or past their sale-by date. But you said what you really enjoyed about working with people like that is these are people who saw everything and lived everything there is to do in show business. And I completely agree with you. I think that like so many things in our society, this is one of the things we really get upside down in America, particularly. I don't think it's quite that way in Europe so much where they have much more respect for longevity and the career and having made it in music or arts or performing. But I, I love all of those performers as well because of that, of what you're talking about. And in each instance, it was always an immense honor to right. get to work with them. Um, I had cast Jerry Stiller to portray the ghost of Vince Lombardi. And at the time he was playing Frank Stanza and, yeah. you know, playing Frank, there's a, there's a, it's, it's a, it's a fact. It's not merely like a myth, but he was the only actor on the show that never got notes from Jerry and um, Larry. Interesting. Because he actually, <laughs> he, um, he replaced the original actor who played right. Frank Costanza. Right. And originally the logic was that the mother would be the sort of, you know, overbearing loudmouth, and the father was sort of browbeaten. Mm. And I saw an interview with, with Jerry years ago. And he said, when he, he showed up on the first day, he knew the actor who had originally played George's father. And he thought this, this is a legendary theater actor. Mm. If, if I play him, the character, like he played him, I can't do a better job. Mm. And as soon as he, he started reading his lines, apparently Jerry and Larry looked at each other like, <laughs> that's the solution. So when I got to meet Evans, which was like my Make-A-Wish Foundation Day, I just kept thinking, you know what? <laughs> you ran the studio. Like you you were the guy. Yeah. You know, and 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 you know, and Francis directed it and Mario wrote it and Al produced it. And you know, there was there was a million people who made that happen, but you're Robert Evans, you know, mm. like you're the guy that Charlie Bulloodorn plucked out of the Garmento business. Right. And you ran Paramount. So yeah, there's always a little bit of a, well, Evans always says he starts his famous book, which mm -hmm. I always tell people, don't read it, just listen to it. But yeah. he always goes, um, there's three sides to every story, yours, mine, and the truth. He's acknowledging um, at least, right? And listen, not everybody had his charisma. Mm -hmm. Not everybody has Jerry Stiller's talent and, mm -hmm. and, and incredible, each one of them incredibly generous. Yeah. But, um, for the most part, you're right. When, when you have the opportunity to meet someone like that and listen to them and hear the stories mm -hmm. to think that, you know, like you, you, you reference like the sense of, Oh, well, there has been one of my favorite anecdotes that I learned while working on, while doing the research for the Godfather gang was Brando was only 47. Yeah when they cast him as the Don, but he was, he was washed up. Yeah. <laughs> that was the sense, you know? Yeah. And Mario Puzo, when Francis hears the thought of, of Brando, he's like, he's like, he's gotta be like 50 years old. And Mario's <laughs> like, Francis, I'm 50 years old. Um, it's incredible. So yeah, it's, well, it's, the, um, th the, those were some of the most important 
you know, most memorable, but also important because I just saw these guys as the consummate professionals. I was going to say, you know, I've been fortunate enough to to work a couple times with a couple of those types of people, Shatner being one um, and Joan Rivers being another. We almost produced oh. a show with Joan Rivers and Joan was, you know, everyone, both Shatner and Joan are people that within the business, you talk to other people, people in the know will always say of those two people, particularly like, you're not even going to believe that these people show up on a set with 50, 60, 75 people. They shake everybody's hand. They ask everybody's name. They are completely prepared at all times. They are there to work. They're there to put in a full 10 hour day and whatever you need them to do, they are going to do. There's no star bullshit. There's no, I won't do this. I won't do that. Um, and it was absolutely true in a way that it usually never is for both of those people. Exactly. And I think to your point, you don't stick around in this business. I mean, I can look at the landscape of film careers and you can see a lot of people who had a pretty big profile at one point or a few years and through their own behavior, through whatever, they don't have that anymore. And, and it's very apparent, although now we're living in a time where you can kind of have fake presence, even when your career really isn't uh, operating at that level. Uh, so I think people like this that we're talking about are definitely fascinating to me. This episode here started because I've been doing the pod for quite a while. There are a few white whale films that I kind of have shied away from doing just because how do you do it? What's the in? And The Godfather is clearly one of those. Godfather 1, Godfather 2. Anyway, I recently, a few months ago, started watching them again for God knows how many hundredths of a time. And my conventional wisdom that I told myself was, I am a Godfather 2 guy. Godfather 2 is superior to Godfather 1 in this shorthand of kind of idiotic film hierarchy that we and I put things into in my mind. And I had done an episode with Mark Seal, who wrote a really good book about the making of The Godfather. Oh, it's fantastic. You know, I had read your book, um, but I always convinced myself that this is what I thought, except for some reason, and I don't know why this happened, when I recently watched Godfather 2 again, but then I watched Godfather 1, I realized I completely flipped. And I now think Godfather 1 is, this, is the clearly superior film. Godfather 2 is great. Don't get me wrong. Love it. But the sequelness of it is so apparent to me now in a way that I think it never was. I might have just watched either too many or enough movies in between the years where now I kind of see Godfather 2 working. And although parts of it work incredibly well, I think what we know about the making of is interesting to talk about some of the things that it lost and some of the things that it gained. Where do you stand, if you stand anywhere, on 1v2, even though I agree that's a, a stupid shorthand to get into, but I'm going to get into it anyway. Well, it's interesting because I've only, and again, I think both of them are literally two of the greatest films ever made. And most people will always say that, you know, there's there's a similar debate about A New Hope and The Empire Strikes Back. Right. But for a variety of reasons, most are subjective, but some of them are factually objective. I've always felt one was the better of the two movies. And, and this isn't a slight to the second one because it's just, it's the nature, you know, again, like as the youngest of five children, there's something, 
There's just a reality to coming next or last. If you don't know, if you haven't seen and you don't understand the character of Don Corleone Mm -hmm. circa The Godfather, then when he's spoken about in The Godfather Part 2, you don't, you know, like, again, I I don't know if you recollect this, but years ago, about 10 years ago after um, Blade Runner premiered, Mm -hmm. They released the director's cut. Yes. Because there was never meant to be that sort of great film noir mm-hmm. voiceover. Correct. And when I first read the article about it, I thought, oh, gee, you know, I always thought that was such a brilliant conceit because it it is a, you know, it's a it is, he's yeah. a, a gumshoe. He's a yeah. you know, he's a hard drinking detective walking the streets of LA. So I went to see the the director's cut, and there, there is no voiceover on it. And afterwards, I went out with, you know, my my group of usual suspects. And the, the general consensus was, gee, you know, it, it didn't need the voiceover. And I go, did you ever see it with the voiceover? And I went, <laughs> yeah. And I go, well, then it didn't need the dialogue. You yeah, know, like yeah. when you come to it with so, so much information. So the simple answer is, I think, and I've always thought one was superior for a variety of reasons. First of all, Marlon Brando's portrayal of Don Corleone is extraordinary. Mm-hmm. And again, if you don't know who he is when you watch number two, you do miss a lot. Yeah. Um, the evolution of Michael Corleone, you know, from the shy, straight-laced war hero, college boy, to becoming Don Corleone mm-hmm. in one. Again, you so so. You know, we'll di- we'll dissect different aspects of this, but in the same way that I I think Empire Strikes Back is phenomenal, but as genius as it was to start it on this ice covered planet, because you were suddenly you know as a fan mm-hmm. of the 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 first one, and as an impressionable you know teen who who loved the whole sci fi thing, it's like oh wait, like the thought that this kind of environment could exist within this. Mm-hmm. you know, this world, but you, you needed to have started on Tatooine to appreciate the ice planet of Hoth. Right. Um, you needed to know, um, one of my, one of my enduring critiques of, uh, Empire Strikes Back is when Han Solo says to the deck, uh, chief, he goes, you know, Captain Solo, if you go out there, you'll, you'll be dead before the first marker. And Han Solo goes, then I'll see you in hell. And I always thought, there is no hell in Star Wars. Like, that's like a Judeo-Christian conceit. All that aside, if you don't know what Luke and Han have gone through in mm-hmm. the first episode, well, mm-hmm. you don't understand why you know Han is so uh, loyal and beholden. So right. it, it is that notion that, you know, with the possible exception of and, – and what's interesting is there – in the case of Godfather one and two empire strikes back and uh, a new hope, it is ostensibly the same director directing the same material. Right. You know? So it's one thing to say is Oppenheimer better than tenant. <laughs> well, they're completely different stories, right. but in this case they yeah. are one and they are two. But um, I really think that also the more you watch too, it doesn't become not as great of a movie, mm-hmm. but the more you watch one Godfather one, 
I always find more things to see and more things to learn. And there's more nuance in everything. Totally agree. You, uh, you, you just synopsized it perfectly. That, that's what I, that's what I know now that I think that I didn't know that I thought before you just said that sentence, because you're right. And, and I think it's because when you know sequels and you know that you've got to do kind of the same things, but differently, they can still be great on their own, but they're still built on something that existed before them in a way. And I guess as a fan of films and how they're constructed and how they're produced and all of the things that go into them, it's hard to ever not understand how foundational everything in The Godfather is and always will be. Um, I sent you a link. I don't know if you got to read it, but I was just, I was watching something else the other day and they had an excerpt of a new uh, song by Naz, the rapper. And yeah. part of the part of the chorus or part of the verse is like, he sees Fredo's everywhere. Bumping like Fredo, 70s, I play with Plato. All I see a bunch of Fredo's. All I see a bunch of Fredo's. All I see a bunch of Fredo's. All I see. All I see is a bunch of Fredos. <laughs> and it's just all this Godfather stuff, you know, and it's it's well, it's still so you know, so resonant. To your point, I mean, the notion of anyone, like any end elder statesman in any category being, you know, he's the godfather of soul, he's <laughs> yeah. the godfather of Vegas. I re-listened to Coppola's uh commentary. Yeah. One of his um no, he did not want to direct the second film because the first one always almost killed him. And yeah. he made this list of demands. He went to Charlie Bluedorn and he said, look, I don't want anybody from the studio there. I don't need them. Mm -hmm. um, I want a million dollars. I want a million dollars. One of his most quirky demands was he insisted on calling it part two. Right. Now, up until that point, no film had ever been referred to as part two. Mm -hmm. Fun trivia question. So I said, okay, but were there things like sequels, right? And mm -hmm. sure, I mean, like there were the Bob Hope, Ben Carsby road movies. There was, you mm -hmm. know, everything Dean and Jerry did was what, but the closest I could come to was the James Bond franchise. So when Godfather 2 comes out in 1974, December 1974, do you know how many James Bond movies had been produced at that point? It's got to be at least six or seven or eight probably nine nine <laughs> but each one of them was a standalone right, right? it was the title yeah and james bond was you know the the quintessential lone wolf mm -hmm. yes there was money penny there was q mm -hmm. there was m but the thing about the godfather that i always remind myself is it is a movie about a family right so, and, and here's a perfect example. If you don't know the Connie Corleone from Godfather Part One, mm. when she comes barging into Michael's <laughs> office with Merle, mm -hmm. it's you like, in retrospect, you know, you go, wow, look yeah. what's happened to Connie. And yeah. well, after all, you know, Michael killed Carlo. And mm -hmm. so that's sort of, um, years ago, I took that an amazing Robert McKee story seminar. Yeah. And there's this, uh, you know, writing trope he talks about called the rush of insight, right? It's not a plot twist. It's that moment where you go, mm -hmm. you know, so when Fredo, when Michael overhears Fredo in the, mm -hmm. in the club and 
Havana go? And he goes, oh, yeah, you know, Johnny Ola turned me out. Like, you know, and Michael, like yeah. you feel it the way Michael feels totally. it. But again, the layers mm-hmm. of information and the layers of emotion. Um, and look, too, there are so many things to love about, sure. too. All right, well, let's talk, yet, let's, let's talk about one for a second. Let's do it. One of the things I'm fascinated by is that The Godfather is one of those things in the entertainment business that's almost impossible to really pin down or discuss. To Evans's point, you know, there's three versions of the truth. In the case of The Godfather, there's probably been 12 versions. I think we can see now that most often what occurs, and it's very instructive to me, I guess, is success has a thousand fathers, whatever the expression is. I'm always struck when I read about the making of The Godfather, how even... Brando, the whole cast really thought it was a B picture, a B movie. They, they, if they, you know, people forget, and I hadn't read the novel until, until just this, this past few months, which was fascinating to read. Um, but I think people for the movie has so far eclipsed the book that people forget the source material one and two, when Evans was alive. He's the most charismatic person in the universe of The Godfather. Even if you don't know who film executives are, how many film executives have a book, an audio book, a, a documentary film made about them that cross over and that isn't just for wonks like us who are going to go see the Lou Wasserman documentary? Like, that's not the general public. But the general public got a sense of Evans, knew who Evans was, saw his movie, read his book, all that kind of stuff. Now, when he was alive, he sucked a lot of attention to himself. That was the Evans, that's the supernova. That's what Blue Dorn was trying to trying to capture, right? And to, to point in his direction and help him turn around this moribund studio. Now, when Evans passes away, Coppola is always there. He's always has been there. And he has generally had pretty much the same story. I listened to the same commentary tracks you're talking about on both the commentary track for one and two. He's very upfront about kind of uh, doing what, you know, really having to be talked into doing one by George Lucas. You need the money. We're dying up here in San Francisco. This company's failing. Like, just do it. Are you crazy? And Coppola's attitude is like, this book is so trashy. Like I can't, what, what like he, he saw himself as this artiste, you know? Um, and to your point in two, he was like, why do I want to do that again? Um, again, kind of basically says in that contract, he did it for the money and he did it because he could have the control that he didn't have on one. Is it Blue Dorn that said to him or Evans, you, it's like having the recipe for Coca-Cola and you, you say you don't want to make any more. That's the trolley, you know, that was the trolley Blue Dorn quote That's where he was just like, Francis, we're, you know, we, we own it up and right. down. <laughs> right. So different supernovas at different time. Like recently with the offer, that's like Al Ruddy's moment to sort of, to tell his story of what he shaped and what he saw as the story. But here's here's an interesting parallel in the spirit of, you know, does art imitate life or does life imitate art? When Coppola talks about both films, but especially in one, he said there were so many phenomenal characters and there were so many phenomenal actors bringing those characters to life. We wanted to make sure that everyone had like the equivalent of their solo, right? So, you know, for argument's sake, Michael's explanation mm-hmm. on the backstory of Luca Brasi. Yeah. It's my family, Kay. 
It's not me. Yeah. Right. Sonny lecturing Michael, Tom lecturing Sonny. Every, every character was given an opportunity to really shine and be, and for, because it also helped you really like, you know, when Tom Hagen goes to see Waltz, you know, we, we see what Tom's real, mm-hmm. you know, talents are. And all. Yeah. So similarly, I thought it was very touching because, you know, Evans, Evans and Coppola just, you know, <laughs> by the end, they wanted to kill each other. Yeah. And there's that famous, the set of, of telegrams that go yes. back and forth between Brilliant. them. But I was really moved when, um, I guess it was the last Academy Awards or the one before that, you know, Evans had passed away and Francis came out and he, you know, he really, you know, in a really charming yeah. gentleman, Willie way, he goes, you know what, at the end of the day, Evans ran the studio, like mm-hmm. he ran that studio and he, he fought Charlie. I, I, I think uh, I feel moments like this should be sincere and brief. And I'm so grateful to my two wonderful friends to come here to help me uh, celebrate with you uh, this project that we began 50 years ago with really the most extraordinary collaborators, many of them legends, and so many of them that uh, uh, I can't take the time to list them all, but you know them all well. So I'm going to only thank two from the bottom of my heart. One is a collaborator who has my, I've thanked many times, and every time you see the name of the Godfather, his name is above the title, Mario Puzo. And another, and I another I've never thanked, but the time is due that I do, because it was his participation and his decisions at the end that made it possible. Robert Evans. So thank you. There's a great Robert Evans-esque quote about uh, movie making that I apply to a lot of any sort of creative task I'm set to. And the quote is, if you can't make the poster, don't make the picture. (laughs) So when I started writing and doing the research for the Godfather gang, I said, okay, well, eat your own dog food and make the one sheet. And Mm -hmm. the one sheet says, in the fall of 1970, a group of misfits, maniacs, has-beens, nobodies, fakers, frauds, and con men got together to pull off one of the greatest scores in history. They weren't looking to rob a bank. They were trying to make a movie. And I was like, that's the story. I mean, these guys Mm -hmm. who were such, I mean, what a cast of characters. Right. And yet they did it. And, 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 you know, you watch it and it's such a monumental film. And to your point about people assuming it was going to be a movie, well, look, in retrospect, nobody had made Mm -hmm. a a mob, a gangster movie of any meaning Mm -hmm. in decades. Right. Um, the book, look, the book was beloved. I mean, it yeah. was the biggest Big selling hit. book ever. But, you know, it's it's fascinating because, you know, we all know the story that Sinatra hates the book. Sinatra mm-hmm. hates the book. Well, if you only think that the Johnny Fontaine character is in the book as much as he's in the movie, read the book. Because Johnny Fontaine has a whole – you make a whole movie about Johnny Fontaine. I love that you part You can make a whole movie about – um, Mary Mancini, you know, right. Sonny's. So I, and, and, you know, the, the rumor in Hollywood, and it was a substantiated rumor 
originally Charlie says, you know, okay, you can make this movie, but you make it, you know, you make it on the lot and you Mm -hmm. make it contemporary. Yeah. So, you know, there was this whole notion of, you know, Evans is going to make love story and call it the Godfather. And, you know, Al had even suggested to Mario, who was, who was writing the Mm -hmm. screenplay. Coppola was never supposed to write the screenplay. He said, uh, Mario, well, maybe, maybe you just open up with like a love scene. Yeah. You know, <laughs> so it it really is, you know, and, and at any given moment, like no one more so than Coppola said, this doesn't happen without Puzo. Yeah. In fact, I don't know if you know this anecdote. Um, Evans had always wanted to make the first iteration of the great Gatsby. Right. And um, he hired Francis to do a draft. And Francis looked at the book and he goes, there's no dialogue in this book. <laughs> yeah, he talks about like having a panic attack because he's yeah. he's like in a Paris, he, he holed up in like an expensive hotel in Paris and he's like, this is great. I'm going to finally put this on the screen. And he's like opening the book. He's like, oh shit, there's no dialogue. And what, the, how, what are you going to do? Make up so, the dialogue? For- <laughs> so Coppola, you know, he more so than anyone, like there are these famous, uh, speeches he gave like he had such incredible gratitude mm-hmm. to Puzo because he said look he made he created, he created all these characters yeah. he wrote all these like these the scenarios yeah. the characters and it is interesting because unless you've read the book you don't realize that the reason the movie is called part two because it is for the most part all the things that don't make mm-hmm. it to the screen right well, one of the things I wanted to do in this episode was kind of reclaim Puzo a bit because my own ignorance about him, I realized was pretty complete. You know, I knew the name, um, I, I knew the story of the graphic design of the novel before I ever read the novel. And I'm so glad that I read the novel and I'm so glad I dived into Puzo. There's so many cool documentaries I would love to do of, uh, you know, this place that he worked at, this kind of, this hack house of, uh, incredible writers just churned out every kind of pulp you could imagine on a daily basis, professional writing of the, of the most, you know, trashiest variety of porn, science fiction, gangster stuff like yet. And here's this guy who was completely really a failure before the Godfather was published. I mean, he's in trouble. He's, and yet he's a first generation Italian American he grows up in Hell's Kitchen without a father. His mother never really learns to speak mm-hmm. English. He's bookish. He reads all the time. He writes. He joins the army. He learns, learns, learns. He gets out. And and yet, yeah, to your point, you know, he had written these two novels that were both relatively, you know, they received critical acclaim, but he didn't make any money. <laughs> right. And, he, and whatever money he and, made, he completely gambled oh, away was, and just you know had no ability to the worst degenerative gambler <laughs> in the world and there's a there's that great anecdote where evans um you know and, the, and puzo would walk around with these enormous cigars yeah. they were like you know a foot long and he walks into evans's office at paramount at least that's the story and he's got this crumpled up uh treatment it's a manuscript for this book he's writing called the mafia mm-hmm and Evans takes one look at him, and he, as Evans describes it, he goes, I knew he was a degenerate gambler because I'm a degenerate gambler. <laughs> and the first thing he says to him is, how much are you in for? Yeah. 
you know, because he just knows. He just knows this guy is broke. But yeah, so. Well, know, where, the, where does Puzo the get the ability to write as brilliantly as he does the Johnny Fontaine character arc, which is written as if the person himself experienced the heights that Puzo himself hadn't experienced at the time he's writing The Godfather and then lost that. That's the the poignant brilliance of the Johnny Fontaine section of the of the Godfather book is how well Puzo inhabits this thing that you and I now know about show business, about lives lived in show business that can be kind of hollowed out when the light dims, when the audience passion fades. He captures that so brilliantly. To your point, a Johnny Fontaine movie would be great. He never even knew a mafioso. Right. He, he always says it. But, you know, he he did grow up in Hell's Kitchen. Right. And he was an Italian-American. And he was of the era. And I think what happened was he let himself write what he knew. Mm-hmm. There's a, There's this famous anecdote that Al Ruddy is dispatched to the Gulf and Western building in New York to meet Charlie Bluedorn because Charlie has to approve the producer Mm -hmm. and he's waiting for Charlie and he's waiting for Charlie and Charlie comes storming in. And first thing he just says, he goes, honey, why do you want to make this picture? And Al just, Al had all these notes and he had this whole spiel and he looks at Charlie and he goes, I want to make an ice cold picture about a bunch of people you love who scare the shit out of you. Mm -hmm. And Charlie just stares at him and goes, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. You know, <laughs> oh, I was going to say what's interesting in, in terms of Don Corleone is in the book, he's more of that old school, old world mustache Pete, as Puzo refers to him. He's more actually like Philip Tataglia in Godfather, right? He's got the oily mustache. He's he's low rent in the book. His his clothes are ill fitting. He he is not, that's why famously, I think the very first scene that Brando shot was the Salazzo scene. And if you look at the way he's dressed there, he's dressed a little differently than he is elsewhere in the film. And that was, I, I, as I read that, those dailies didn't go over great because they couldn't hear Brando. It was Brando's first day. Uh, his clothing was very sort of all earth tones. And this wasn't something that the studio was expecting. But the genius of Brando, Coppola, Evans, uh, but really Brando. I mean, let's face it. I mean, to to go where Brando went with it is not what the character is in the book. I mean, the the events that the character participates in are there, but the characterization is completely different. And you don't even question it until you read the book. And then I look at that first opening scene where you see Brando in this the crispest tuxedo shirt that's ever been on camera and his complete and utter mastery of the character. It's, it's beyond acting. I mean, it's not even, it's, it's a performance, but it's from some other place. I mean, there's nothing like it. You can't, no one else can do that, (laughs) you know? And it's, you know, when Francis gets involved with writing the screenplay, he says to Mario, he goes, you know, there's so many good ideas, but there are too many good ideas. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That was sort of his, you know, diplomatic way of saying, let's just focus on what's really important because in in essence, you, you could not, if you tried to put all that stuff in one movie, you couldn't, it would have been 12 hours long, but his big insight, he goes, you know, when he, when he 
makes his demands to the studio on the Godfather one. He goes, look, we're shooting it local. You know, we're mm-hmm. shooting it on location. We're making, this has got to be a period piece. Mm-hmm. We need more than uh, $2 million. But part of his big idea was um, it's a tragedy. It's a Shakespearean right. tragedy. It's a story of a king and his three sons. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Coppola has said in different interviews, he said, you know, whenever you you sit down and write everything, you should you should kind of be able to think of like, there's one word that describes what this is about. And for the Godfather, the word was power. Mm-hmm. And the notion of what you have to do to get it, what you have to do to keep it, how it affects the people around you, how it affects you. Mm-hmm. And one of my favorite trivia questions to ask fellow Godfather aficionados is, what is the first line of the Godfather? I believe in America. Exactly. <laughs> and that is what the movie's about. That's what the movie's that about. That sense yeah. of, you know, that right. conflict of it's the land of the American dream. But then, as Don Corleone says, you know, you, you had faith in the judges, you had faith in the judges. And then when that didn't happen, mm-hmm. that's when you came to me. Do you, you think know, I'm that, coming to you for justice? Do you think that in that scene, it's so remarkable when I watch it now that the first glimpse of the Don is from behind, out of focus. You see the hand gesture to give the man a drink. I'm wondering now, at the time, you know, if Brando was as massive a star as he had been 15 years previous. Would you even conceive of starting the film without some grandiose entrance by Brando? You know, I wonder if at the time his the 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 place that his career was in sort of allowed something to happen, which actually serves the film so much better. But in retrospect, when you know about how these things come together and you know the pressures that the studio can say, like, well, that's our star. Like you can't start with the star out of focus and we don't even know who the hell he is. But that works so well. I wonder if that's part of of an accidental piece of brilliance. Well, again, and and Coppola was always so generous with acknowledging, you know, where, where various inspiration, you know, his sister suggested that in the Godfather part two, Kate doesn't have a miscarriage. It Mm. is an abortion. Yeah. Right. So what I know, at least from my research is Francis, you know, the, the, the book starts with um, Buonasera in, in the courtroom. Right, yeah. Francis decides he wants to open on the wedding scene because he said, I want people to understand that this is a family mm-hmm. and they have ritual. Like, this isn't a movie about a bunch of gangsters. Yeah. It's a movie about a family that happens to be a bunch of gangsters. Right. But he was having a conversation with Robert Town, who's a good friend of his. And when he when he tells Town he's going to open on the, the wedding, Town was like, maybe. And Coppola goes, no good. And he's like, look, do something more unexpected. Do something like you did in Patton. George C. Scott, General Patton, walking out onto a stage. There is an American flag behind him that's so big, it (laughs) it bleeds off the screen. And we, the audience, are the soldiers he's addressing. We we are exactly who the people. So I think what happened was he he comes up with the idea of yes, it's going to open on this big, bright, festive family wedding, but it's going to start in this dark room. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, I think for me, what was always so amazing about not seeing the dawn, it was almost like the idea of like, well, how do you you know how do you predict, how do you depict God, right? right? 
Yeah. Because we all, so this idea that there is someone that this man is pleading to. And like the way you describe it, you know, when we finally see them, you know, he's sitting there and um, he is a king, yeah. you know, he's, he's a king on a throne. Right. And he just owns that space in a way that, I, as I said, I've, I've done a couple episodes recently after I fall in love with the film again, where I go back and just do all of the actors scenes in the film and kind of go into minute detail. And I started to kind of make notes about doing this for Brando but it's almost beyond the stuff that I typically talk about when I talk about this. Like I did Paul Newman in The Verdict. And there's a lot of acting stuff to talk about when you talk about Paul Newman's scenes in The Verdict. When I start to make notes about trying to talk about all of Brando's scenes in The Godfather, I I almost can't do it. And not because it's not brilliant and beyond amazing, but it's it's just seamless. Like you can't see it working, if that makes any sense. And you no, know, it, it does because I was raised in a comedic Italian American household. But in my family, obviously we're Roman Catholic. The Holy Trinity was God, Jesus Christ, and Joe DiMaggio. Mm-hmm. My father grew up in the Bronx and was an enormous, not just a Yankee fan, Joe DiMaggio. But there was always this theory that nobody realized how good DiMaggio was because he made it look so easy. Right. Yeah. Like he he never had those shoestring catches because he was there before the ball. Right. You know, he hit safely in 56 <laughs> games in a row. And then after missing a game, he hit safely in 37 <laughs> more. There's That's a crazy. theory, and I love yeah. repeating this because it's my. It was one of my late father's favorite things to say about Joe D, as he referred to him as. <laughs> any record in baseball can be broken, but that record, yeah. because if you if you're on a streak, and you strike out, and there are 55 games left in the eight, you can't. Yeah, you know. So, so again, I I think you're right that we you watch Brando and you forget. You know, I almost I never realized until I did the research how young. You know, he was younger yeah. than we are when he played the Don. It's crazy, yeah. But he just brought that character to life in a way that surpasses mm-hmm. the the depiction of him. Like the depiction of him in the book, I get it. Yeah, but he he adds a level of, um you know, wisdom and guile. And to your point, he puts on the tuxedo because it's his daughter's wedding and he can't Mm -hmm. say no to Connie. Right. Mm -hmm. But he's smart enough to know he goes, first of all, and and don't forget to your point about what the studio was expecting. This was the same studio that two years previously had produced (laughs) the brotherhood. Right. Janetta brothers. What's better than that? Nothing. You're damn right. I need you, Vince. Honest to God, I really need you. Well, mama, the family is always a lie. I capito. Don't tell me anything, Vince. That's that's the only way I can do it. Hey, speak English, will you? This is America. I talk like I want, and you don't say nothing. I tell you, this ain't gonna work. <laughs> you know, the government ain't gonna just sit around and let you stick them where it hurts the most. And all the mobsters were dressed in, you know, the yeah. silk suits and everything. Yeah. And but the truth was, you know, to to Brando's credit and to Coppola's credit, he he wanted to be unassuming, yeah. you know. And 
there's this famous story that the real Meyer Lansky used to say to, you know, uh, you know, all the cohorts, Lucky Luciana, mm-hmm. he was, guys, buy yourself a nice car. Don't buy a Cadillac. Get yourself a nice apartment off Fifth Avenue, not on Fifth mm-hmm. Avenue. We have the kind of money that those people have, yeah. but we make our money killing people. <laughs> so the notion of being a little under the radar, mm-hmm. you know, even yeah. that was more credible and believable in retrospect. Like now you yeah. look back at the choices they made. Yeah. But Coppola also, I mean, talk about a genius. The bumpers on the cars at the wedding are made out of wood mm. because during World War II, they replaced the chrome right. bumpers with wood because of the war effort. I the, think that's in the book too, by the way. I think there's a- Sure, but I'm saying yeah. like the the the, the, level, of yeah, the level of detail where yeah. he, he says- um, in this in the scene where Michael and Kay are walking down Fifth Avenue in front of Bess and Company, yeah, the mannequins in the windows are wearing the clothes that would have been on right. the mannequins in the windows that winter for the following mm-hmm. spring. <laughs> and you know, you go, does it make a difference? I go, I did. There are these famous stories that Coppola had the whole cast get together and they mm-hmm. would have dinner together, and they they adopt the body language. Mm-hmm. So there's the famous scene where. Sonny's taunting Michael after he says he'll kill Salazzo and McCluskey. And he goes, you know, Mikey, what do you think? This is the army where you could shoot a guy from two miles away. You got to walk up to him, put a gun against his head and blow his brains all over your nice Ivy League suit. And Sonny goes to almost like give him a noogie, Mm -hmm. but he doesn't. And Michael flinches, even though he doesn't. That's not in the script. That Mm -hmm. was just, Mm -hmm. they, they inhabited all of those characters. They became those characters. You know, what's cool too is, the camaraderie of the cast is something that I think saved Coppola in a sense, because I get the sense in, in listening to Francis on both of the commentaries and reading the materials that he was susceptible to actors appealing to him that their characters might say this or might do this. One of the things he's very upfront about in, in the commentary track to two is he talks about G.D. Spradlin, who's one of my favorite additions into the Godfather universe in, in two. And he says, oh, he, you know, he was, he was amazing with, with most of this dialogue is all stuff he came up with. Now, the price for the license is less than $20,000, am I right? That's right. Now, why would I ever consider paying more than that? Because I intend to squeeze you. I don't like your kind of people. I don't like to see you come out to this clean country in your oily hair, dressed up in those silk suits. You're trying to pass yourselves off as decent Americans. I'll do business with you, but the fact is that I despise your masquerade, the dishonest way you pose yourself, yourself and your whole fucking family. We're both part of the same hypocrisy. But never think it applies to my family. All right. Some people have to play little games. You play yours. So let's just say that you'll pay me because it's in your interest to pay me. But I want you to answer in the money by noon tomorrow. And one more thing. Don't you contact me again, ever. From now on, you deal with Turnbull. 
And I think he even says, you know, the character as written was really sort of uh, just trying to get through the motions of what Michael was trying to do. He wasn't this this fully blown character. And I think he also talks about how some of the Italian actors work in a different style than American actors, where in Italy, the actor shows up, has done the work, has an idea. And your job as a director is, if it doesn't really work for you, you're saying a little less, a little less that, but you're not working with the actor on the set to come up with an entire characterization as American actors tend to do. But I think clearly Brando's the kind of person who showed up with a lot of ideas about what he wanted the Don to do and be and sound like. And I think the other actors could have eaten each other alive if they were clawing for um, the opportunity to take advantage of a relatively new director and a, and a movie like this, but they didn't, they, to your point, everyone has these moments. There's a balance. It doesn't really exist so much in other types of films where people are going to be scrabbling a bit more for their own self-interest. That's one of the remarkable things I think about these films. Now, of course the irony is, and we can maybe segue into some of the things that two loses. The irony is, is that it's really Brando's own bad decisions that causes him to be so pissed off that he won't appear in two as was intended because he's broke and he sells back his points to the studio. Who's smart enough to understand, give him the hundred grand, take the points. And he's so pissed off at that, that of course he can't be pissed off at himself. He's got to direct that at the studio, which he does forget it. I'm not going to be in the movie and I'm going to string you along till the very last minute. And Clemenza, you know, is another loss. Like to think about two and the Frank Pentangeli, which one of the great kismet things is that Michael V. Gazzo ends up as Frank Pentangeli because if he isn't as amazing as he is, I'm sorry, I think a lot of two falls apart because let's not forget, that's supposed to be Clemenza. Clemenza promised the Rosado brothers three territories in the Bronx after he died. You took over, and you didn't give it to them. I welched? You welched. Yeah, Clemenza promised them Ugatas, Muscula. Clemenza promised them nothing. He hated those son of a bitches more than I did. Frankie, they feel cheated. Michael, are you sitting high up in the Sierra Mountains, and you're drinking, uh, what's he drinking? Champagne. Champagne, champagne cocktails. And you're passing judgment on how I run my family. Tua familia. Ancora pote il nome de Coleone. That's Clemenza's supposed betrayal, which is, to your point earlier, so much more meaningful if it is Clemenza. Well, again, like in retrospect, it's so great. I mean, Bruno Kirby as a young Clemenza is brilliant, brilliant, right? But at the same time, and again, in the spirit of what if you could have it all, were they able to stay with Rich Castellano as Clemenza? It's a better story because in one, we see that Clemenza always had a much better relationship with Michael than right. Tessio. Yes. It's not that Tessio didn't like him. It's just yeah. Clemenza was like a, a, an, a real uncle. Yes. Clemenza teaches him how to make the sauce. Clemenza teaches him how to shoot the gun. Right. So then the notion that it's Clemenza mm. that comes out there to read him the riot act. Mm-hmm. It's Clemenza that ultimately betrays him. Now, 
here's my alternative universe for two because I, I three is a disaster. I, I mean, it's just you, you can we can we can say there's this, there's that. It, it's just it shouldn't have happened. It shouldn't be. It doesn't fit. It's 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 tragic that it exists. Here's what should have happened in my alternative universe. Two should have purely been the origin story with De Niro and the 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 story of the Don and Clemenza. And you could still, by the way, have Brando. You could still have some of the some of the other characters as they age in. Because to your point, Brando's still young. Like he can he can play younger than he did in Godfather One. Now, to me, so the best stuff, the 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 heart of two is the the De Niro stuff, the the Little Italy stuff. That the, to me, that's the that's the stuff that warms my soul. It's the only real heart in two because. The rest of what's going on is so fucking grim and it's it's playing out something that has to happen. But to me, that part should have been three. The 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 end of two with Michael alone, a monster, having killed his brother, having lost everything, that's where three should end. Not this redemption story of like the death of and, Michael and Corleone. What's interesting is it is how three ends. He's in the courtyard. He dies. Yeah. But but like you said, listen, there's, to your point, it's like Puzo wrote what he wrote. Yeah. And one of my one of my best friends, this guy, uh, he was like one of my mentors in advertising. His name's Tom Carroll. He's genius. He always argued that the reason three fails, the main reason it fails is there's no Tom Hagen. Totally. Tom Hagen is like the in mm-hmm. in art you would call the interlocutor figure. Yeah. Right? He's us. Yeah. He, you know, we could get close to Tom, Tom can get us close to the family. So, I tried there was a there was a re-edit of 3 and yeah. I read some good things about it. And I tried to watch it and I just said I don't I don't know who these characters are. I don't yeah. know what they're doing. I the the whole thing with, you know, the 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 pope in a mobilar it's like i don't care i'm not invested in it yeah but you you do bring up a great point because in retrospect um one of my other favorite trilogies lord of the rings i never knew it was supposed to just be one book yeah but the publishers literally said it's tolkien they're like look the thing's <laughs> going to be you know seven million and and what's interesting is uh the publisher sort of named the third book, The Return of the King, and Tolkien mm-hmm. goes, well, that's a bit of a spoiler alert. <laughs> but what was interesting, what you just basically said is, you know, in the same way that um, The Lord of the Rings was just meant to be one book, mm-hmm. and then it became three books, and yeah. there was a logic to how it became three books, you're right. It would have been fascinating to make more of mm-hmm. the evolution of, you know, Vito Andalini. It's great to Vito Corleone, and you know because because he's he's the least savvy of the three partners. Yes, but he ultimately, be, you know, when he when he turns the table on Don Finucci, and yeah, um, and then you're right. Like what have, what would have been interesting then is, but but again, to Coppola's credit, because you know he called the ball. He was attracted to doing two because he loved the idea of showing a father and a son. Mm-hmm. And by the way, there cannot be a coincidence that if there's if there is a debate whether 
you know, one is better than two or two is better than one. As I mentioned, there is a debate over whether A New Hope is better than The Empire Strikes Back or vice versa. Mm -hmm. Lucas and Coppola were best friends. Right. <laughs> and, you know, Darth Vader is Luke Skywalker's father and he yeah. does not want him to go into the family business. So I always, <laughs> I always thought there was some uncanny... That's true, yes. You know, and, and there's there's a, there's some really uncanny notions of, um, you know you know, themes that just transcend and yes. always work. But um I you brought up a good point in in our pre in our pre-conversation about, you know, what you get into. Mm -hmm. Because you do get these phenomenal characters. You get um you know Senator Geary. Yes. My Michael V. Gazzo, I mean the only person when he says morta about ostensibly he wants the Rosado brothers dead. When he says Morta, he's, he's threatening Michael. I mean, he, it's, and Michael reads that, I think, in, in that scene. And he can get away with it, to your point. That's, again, all this stuff is supposed to have been Clemenza. Only Clemenza could say something like that to Michael. Uh, but to your point, yes, it's one of those kismet things that, like a gift from above, you get Michael Vigazzo, who's just so charismatic um, but you know, you mentioned Tom Hagen. I think he's missing from two for me as well. He's not into as much as I would like, you know, because of yeah. the, the dedication that Coppola admirably has to that part of the story, which he's putting on the screen, which is Michael has to sideline Hagen for these reasons, which make absolute sense. But for us, I got to have Hagen going yeah. to see Waltz. I've got to have Hagen being Hagen. And we get that well, at the end with, with Frank Pantangeli, but it's not enough for me. And, and he no. is the heart that's missing for me. Um, and, and by the way, you know, what, what was finishing is I was thinking about all the characters I do love, right? With two, right? Yeah. But here's what we lose. We lose Brando. We lose Clemenza, right? We get De Niro. Right, as a young Don, brilliant. We get Michael Vigaza, we get G.D. Sprawlin, we get Hyman Roth, who is, yes. you know, and these are amazing. Amazing. Better. But remember, here's who's missing. Uh, Senator Geary, right, is great. But Senator Geary is just Captain McCluskey taking a step too far. Right. And when we remember how Michael was treated by yes. McCluskey, we can understand his disdain for yes. Senator Geary. Hyman Roth is an amazing, amazing character, right? Mm -hmm. But where's, you know, I like Don Finucci, but I love Luca Brasi. Mm. I love Virgil Salazzo, one of my favorite characters of all in both movies, is Jack Waltz, who I always say gets the best monologue. He does. His he does. monologue is one of the most brilliant mm -hmm. outrageous but completely <laughs> credible monologues and you know th there's a famous story that uh you know nobody really curses in the in the, the godfather mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. but more importantly they never say the word mafia mm, right right and that's one of the concessions to um the Joe Colombo Senior yeah. and the Italian American. But do you know that the, the word mafia was only ever in the screenplay once? Right. And it's when uh Tom, Tom confronts Hagen, yeah. Wolf on the set. Yeah. 
And he goes, I don't care how many Dago, Goomba, Greaseball, yeah. Guinea Wap, Mafia. Yeah. And that's the only word they had to take yeah. out. And by the way, how about this retort? Actually, sir, I'm German Irish. We'll, <laughs> we'll get this straight, my crap, Mick friend. <laughs> friend. I mean, and the funny thing it's is, operatic, that could have you know? been, you could have laughed that off. And yet yeah. it works. And it's exactly what he would have said. What else about Waltz is interesting is, and this is where Francis is really good. He understood that Waltz couldn't just be a caricature. He, he knew that Waltz had to be an actually incredibly powerful person in his own right, who is so in command of that moment with Tom Hagen and so in command of his denial of the Godfather's ask that, again, we have to put our mind back to when we hadn't seen the movie yet. Now we know all this stuff. But at that point, you don't know the far-reaching nature of the Godfather's power because that hasn't been demonstrated yet. This powerful man in Los Angeles is nothing compared to the power that the Godfather can enact silently from the other coast. That, that's what's brilliant about the Waltz thing. And you know, in, in the original cut, Tom comes back and tells the Don Mm-hmm. which means time transpires. Yeah. And I can't remember who, you know, one of the editors, somebody said to Francis, he goes, Francis, Tom gets in the car and we just cut. That's how quick that's brilliant. it happens. Yeah. That, that, that's ready. a brilliant piece of filmic time and management, you know, because we don't know. You just, did did Tom Hagen set it up? I posted this on Instagram. I was like watching it. I didn't, I was like, is, are, we, are we meant to believe that Tom Hagen like had a couple of guys do this or was it, Don Corleone, who like, but you don't need to know. That's the genius but, and again, about but it. The genius of it is there's this sense of we get what we want. Yeah. Or things go sideways immediately. <laughs> well, I'm saying it too. I wanted to to again remember how brilliant De Niro is at a time when we hadn't really seen De Niro be brilliant yet as filmgoers. No. And to to essentially step into the Brando role is insane for any actor to do. <laughs> and yet here is De Niro, who isn't doing a Brando impersonation by any stretch of the means. He doesn't look like Brando, but he owns that same sense, that budding sense of self-possessedness that Brando so perfectly put on screen in one and if ever there was an indication of the greatness to come, it's 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 brand it's De Niro's performance in two, which I to me is is the best performance in the film, without a doubt. His character only speaks, I think, a handful of words in English. Yeah, the rest is all Italian, mm-hmm. and the only thing he says in English is, "I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse." Yes, right, right, yeah, but. He does, to his credit, he does things physically, pocketive mm-hmm. of the Don without it being a parody. Yep. I love when um when Jenko Jenko Abandonzo, when the, the yes. owner of the grocery store comes after him. Oh with my the god, goes, heartbreaking. No, you know, and it was no, no, no. it was it was De Niro. It was a very De Niro thing to do, yes. but it was also like the like the notion of the Don when when he brushes off salazzo's trousers you know that yes he's always self-deferential even though he holds all the cards wait i want to ask you i want to ask you about that specific scene because i had a question about that so when 
when the grocer comes out after having to let Vito go, and he has the this heartbreaking box of groceries with the bread sticking out and the lettuce and all this stuff, and De Niro's like, no, 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 he won't take it. Now, is he not taking it because he knows the grocer might need this as much as he does? No. Or is not he not all. taking it because he's saying, you're doing me a wrong here? I understand why you're doing me a wrong, but let's not let's not make yourself feel better for not standing up to this guy. Is there a part of that? Here's my interpretation of it. And again, this is so subjective. My father was the kind of person who would do any favor for anyone, but was incredibly reluctant to ask anyone for a favor. And part of it was his own, you know, the, the myth of himself that he led, which was, I I do and I give and I'm magnanimous, mm -hmm. but I don't take and I don't ask. It's just it's just not my nature. Mm -hmm. So for me, that's that's an example of, and he sort of alludes to it. It's like he because he see he knows the position that Don Finucci has put him in. Yes, he knows that this guy would never want, but he cannot say no to this guy. Right. So if anything, what I love about it is he he commits himself. He's like, I can, I, and don't forget, here's an orphan. Mm -hmm. He's made his way to America. He's, we don't even know how he's survived on the streets until right. now. Right. And you have the sense that this is a person whose character says, you can never be beholden to anybody. Right. Because if you can't take care of yourself. Yep. You, you, you've, you've never not been the one to take care of yourself. And what's, what's great is, you know, too, that he is legitimately grateful. Right. You know, he's been given this job. Now, um, the guy who gives him, the friend who gives him the job is the consigliere that Tom Hagen replaces. Right, right. Now, in the in the book, and there's a version of the movie where they go the night of Connie's wedding, they right. go to the hospital because his, you know, Jenko, the son, is when Sonny says to Tom, you know, he goes, If I had a wartime consigliere, like would happen. Yeah. But again, it's I think I think the the power of that scene is it's 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 the Don, it's him being the Don before, before he's the, Don. the Don. That's one of, that should have been two. That should have been all of two. Oh. Listen, um, and the the scene where he, you know, as he ascends to power, the scene where um, the the widow with the little boy oh and the God, dog come that. to him, and but the way he plays the, with the with the fingers you know, and looking at her and the nose and and his aware, oh, grazie, grazie, like that's such a brilliant scene. To your point, played in Italian, it's crazy to think about it. Really doing it that way. Listen, I always joke <laughs> around that when we were growing up you know, we were partially raised on I Love Lucy reruns, right? Mm -hmm. When I Love Lucy was running in primetime once a week, not only was it the number one show in its time slot and in the number one show in general mm -hmm. every week for five years in a row, but Lucy Ricardo was married to a Cuban who yelled at her in Spanish <laughs> in primetime right. in the 1950s with no subtitles. Yes. And everybody just got it. Yeah. So- you know, again, there's there's a there's a, another great trivia is why when Michael 
and Salazzo are speaking to each other in Italian, is it not subtitled? Yes, I love that. And the reason is they were talking so fast. There just wasn't time for it. And and again, to the genius of Coppola, he goes, I just knew people would know what they were saying. You know? And um, I wanted to ask you also, into... um, God, I know Pacino is great. Michael is such a bummer in two compared to one for me. You know, Michael is so heavy and freighted and unlikable all the way through two. Yeah. You know, there are, there's not one, he has not one moment in two of the humanity that he had in one, which lent power to that incredibly edited filmed moment where he crosses the Rubicon and pulls the trigger, his face, his eyes, his, the, the soundtrack swelling up. It's, it's an incredible, incredible moment. I can appreciate the control, the physical control of the performance in two. But I don't quite understand what the stakes really are. Why does why does Hyman Roth want to kill Michael? Just because Michael wants to obtain a position in a hotel in Vegas that Roth doesn't even have a position in? Uh, our friend, our friend in Miami sent me to tell you he won't object if you move out whomever, right? He's gonna move out the guy who runs the casino. What exactly? Yeah, what's the what's the what are the so, stakes? Like I don't a couple a couple thoughts. One is there and again in this in this spirit of what's known as you know setup and payoff. Mm-hmm. In in Godfather, in the Godfather, there's the scene where they contemplate, you know, if if the Don dies, Tom says, yeah. we lose, you know, 50% of the power and we lose. So one of the things I've always imagined is even though it's arguably 10 years later, mm-hmm. although the movie just is filmed and released two years later, there's a sense of, you know what? Michael Corleone isn't Vito Corleone. Mm-hmm. And he is kind of trying to take the family legit. Mm-hmm. And maybe we don't, maybe we don't need him mm-hmm. to be a partner. And more importantly, you know, in 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 the book, it's laid out a little bit more, but yeah. you get the sense because Frankie Pantangelis tells us, you know, Tessio is dead. So we don't know what happened. You know, yeah. When when Michael kills Carlo and Tessio and the the other members of the mm-hmm. five families, the Corleones just own New York. Right. So the sense is that he's now uprooted. He wants to be in Vegas. He wants to be doing his thing. He's moving in on Mo Green. And don't forget, Mo Green mm-hmm. is killed. Right. And as Hyman Roth will tell you, yes. Michael, <laughs> there was a kid growing up <clears throat> who was as close to me as a brother. Yeah. And he had the idea to build a resort in the middle of the desert. At there a isn't stop. even no. a statue or a plaque. Or a plaque or a name. <laughs> and that kid was Mo Green. Now, you can't imagine that Hyman Roth, True. despite him saying this is the business True. we have chosen, yes. isn't looking for an excuse to kill. That makes sense. Right? So I think what's interesting is, and, and Coppola, in one of his interviews, he makes this great point. He goes, you know, I'm not a big believer in plot. With these and he goes, yes. and yet when you let these things happen, they are fun. So yeah. his whole theory was part of two is like this murder mystery. Yeah. That's really like who 
in my mm. in my house in my bedroom where my wife sleeps, yeah. where my children come to play with their toys. So <laughs> who does it? You know, when we figure out it's yes. it's Fredo at the yeah. behest of Roth because they're dangling. So you know, part of it is just you know it's all that interscene mm-hmm. fighting and. But I do I agree with you that as as evil as the Don is because he is yeah he's also lovable. Michael. There, not he, he never, in, he can't enjoy himself. Yeah. We don't see him in any capacity. You know, we, 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 we know that he loves his kids, but we don't, we, we yeah. feel like the weight of the world is on him. Yeah. And I agree with you that uh, the De Niro character, the De Niro portrayal of Vito is mm-hmm. brilliant. Yeah. Let me you ask know, you this about he, when, why does Pentangeli have to die? when everyone now knows it was caused by Salazzo lying to um, Pantangeli to try to convince it, which, which again, doesn't make any sense because if you're going to kill the guy, why plant in his head that it was Michael Corleone who's having him killed? But okay, that's a plot point. And by the way, you know that that's an ad lib, right? Uh, what, Michael Corleone says hello by ILO? Yes. Yeah. So, so, so if, if after the fact, after the trial scene, after the, the Senate testimony scene, it's clear to Tom Hagen and to Michael that Frank Pentangeli was misled into believing that Michael had double crossed him. But if he was misled, why does he have to die? Why does he have to kill himself? A couple things. One is his brother who they fly in and parade into court. How how long does he have to live? Right? What do you mean? You think they're going to kill the brother? Like no, no, no. What I mean is, what if the brother drops dead one day? Well, now we don't have that card to play against uh, Frank. More importantly, that's why they cast the, an older actor, maybe, to play the brother to give that he's not a young, vigorous man. For I'm example. just saying, like, just yeah. in general, you go look. You know, how old do any of these guys live? Right? But I think more specifically, when he's we worked together, but that was years ago. Michael Corleone did this. My Mr. I have a signed affidavit. Michael Corleone did that. Michael Corleone. Uh, sure. So, <laughs> I mean, what? I mean, and, and by the way. When he's drunk off his ass, by the way, on the set, right? He is. And apparently the <laughs> rehearsal went a million times better. But like, you think how much better could it be? Yeah. But I think what happens is the guy who's running the hearing. Yeah. He's he Hyman Ross guy. Yeah, right. He's okay. Hyman Ross guy, right? So he literally says, he goes, we're, we're going to have an investigation. So you think, okay, they take Frank back to the base. Mm. Well, what do they do with him next? Because they have to do something. Yeah. Yeah. So my theory is. I guess you're right. He has to go. He's, he's going to maybe flip or not yeah. flip. Are they going to let There's him There's too much leverage they, on him. Nobody's going to let him walk. No, you're right. You're right. right. But, you know, so I guess it, theory, speaks, it speaks to my desire in two to have more heart of the De Niro Don performance, to have more heart of the Pentangeli performance. These are alive performances in a film filled with such leadenness. And anytime there's a spark of something, a Mo Green spark, it's snuffed out because that's the relentless journey that this train of Michael Corleone is on. And I get it. It has to be that way. I understand that. But it's almost well, that's like why- business-wise, wouldn't you think 
a smarter business thing at the time would have been not to just capitalize on the success of the the Godfather one, but to say, let let's do something as equally out of left field as this whole movie was. Let's not bring back the majority of these characters played by these actors. Let's go do the prequel. I mean, now we have that language in movies, but they don't think they really had that language in film then, to your earlier point. No, I, I mean, again, it's so interesting to realize that at that point, there were franchises like, again, the Bob, yeah. you know, the Bing and Bob on the road. and But the notion of, you know, what what I guess you now call in Hollywood world building. Yeah. Right. Um, and and the desire to, you know, what, one of my favorite questions that people ask in the spirit of, well, well, what happens? I mean, they kill the heads of the five families and everybody doesn't go to war again. Right. Yeah. So, but the point is, yeah, that's the power of the scope of this story. Um, but listen, in retrospect, the fact that they made part two, mm-hmm. the fact that it is so good, mm-hmm. you know, I, I had never thought of, you know, your notion of there should have actually been three and what it should have been is, mm-hmm. you know, start with the Godfather, go then back, take me back and then take me forward. Yes. But again, who, you know, who would have even thought back then to do three, like, you know, three movies? So I always joke around that one and two are an embarrassment of riches. Yeah. However, as Artie Lang once said, he was a huge Godfather fan. He was on, this was back when he was on the Howard Stern show. And he goes, you know, the great thing about getting uh, Godfather one, two, and three on DVD is, you know, you watch one and two, well, you and your friends are watching one and two, you know, you could do blow off of the box for the number three. <laughs> and I always feel like that's about that's the about most what it's generous worth. thing you could say, because, <laughs> you know, there's no, at that point, it doesn't feel, it no longer yeah. feels like it's in and of the world right. of the Godfather. And, and again, like suddenly you're stuck with this high concept plot. Yeah. Well, am I right also? Care. Am I right also that there's there's no Puzo in three? Or did he write well, again, three? Yeah, with- well, in a sense, there is no Puzo because there's no pre-existing material now. Right. Now it's all made up yeah. from scratch. And and I have to say, this uh, is not where Francis succeeds as a director for me. When he's writing from scratch, I, I don't think there are many examples of that. Yeah, like, listen, I mean, his take on The Outsider is fantastic, but it's a really brilliant yes. piece of literature with really great characters. Simple. Simple's hard, but yes. simple, right? Apocalypse Now is Heart of Darkness, right? And Even again, the remaker really, is Grisham. People say I the conversation, think, but I think the conversation to me is very is a very overrated film that doesn't really work as a film. It's so revered. It's one of those films you can't have any opinion about other than to bow down. But I think if you look at it critically again, objectively, again, it suffers from what Michael suffers from in two a bit with Gene Hackman. Gene Hackman is such a downer in the conversation. All the things you love about Gene Hackman are, are stripped away. I get why that's fun for the actor. I get why the actor wants to do that. But reflecting again on your notion of like being a terminal downer, what, what is so brilliant about the portrayal of all the characters in one is you know, Tom Hagen's the most straight-laced of all of them, but yeah. he still knows what, you know, he he has one client. Mm-hmm. 
and it's Don Corleone. Yes. You know, Sonny is is this lovable joie de vie guy, but he'll kill you in a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. Um, and so many of the characters have that, you know, and again, mm-hmm. Clemenza, he's like your uncle, but he's literally down in the basement teaching you how to kill a guy <laughs> with an untraceable gun. So anytime you have a character yeah. that's just, you know, mm-hmm. a relentless killing machine or, you know, like th- yeah. there's like w- one of my favorite movies. And I just watched it the other day. Cause I feel like you can't get through the summer without watching jaws. Sure. I mean the character of Quint. Yeah. You know, he's smiling and he's laughing and he's singing these, you know, body, you know, sailing ditties. And then he unloads you with, we're coming back from the island yeah. of Tinian Delaney, we're delivering the bomb, right? You're like, holy Jesus, right? And if he were to um, die on his boat, he would just cut you up and throw you off and probably have a beer and go on with his life. Like he yeah. wouldn't, he wouldn't be broken up over it, even if, you know, he no. liked you and as again, a person. And, and again, the genius of, <laughs> well, I guess this guy is an old drunk and yeah. I guess this guy, you know, he's, he's pissed off at sharks because they eat his tune. <laughs> When you understand, mm-hmm. you know, why, when he tells that incredible, you know, and again, in the same way that Robert Town writes yeah. the monologue, the dialogue between Michael and the Don. Um, John Milius. John Milius, yeah. who who is the inspiration for Walter yes. in uh, Big Lebowski. Yeah. I mean, that that's one of the greatest monologues <laughs> in the history of filmmaking. Oh, absolutely. But it's so much for, you know, Hooper looks at him mm-hmm. in a different way. Um, we see him in this different way. And it, it also, you know, again, in the spirit of setup and payoff, he literally says, he goes, I'll never put on a life preserver again. So as the orc is going down and he chucks the yeah. life preserver to Quint, <laughs> to, you know, hey, yeah. here's something just to get off the topic <laughs> on Jaws. I do this kind of fun presentation for people who want to understand story structure. And I use Jaws because it's such an austere mm-hmm. story, right? Three principles, they're mm-hmm. going to kill the shark. And the theme of Jaws is arguably one man can make a difference, right? Mm -hmm. Brody says it out loud. Mm -hmm. So it dawns on me, though, at the end, Brody fights off the shark with the scuba tank. Yep. And then he shoots the scuba tank, Mm -hmm. but he doesn't shoot it with his sidearm. Right. He shoots it with Quint's rifle. Yeah. So the, the tank belongs to Hooper and the rifle belongs to Quint. And the one man who has to make a difference relies on the, you know, the implements of these two bifurcated mm. versions mm-hmm. of manhood in the seventies, sure. you know, the, okay. the, 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 what, what is the prototype of the yuppie mm-hmm. and the, you know, salt of the earth working yep. man. And when I, when I introduce that thought into this like round table, somebody goes, you don't think that was just a coincidence? I go, I can't. <laughs> there, there are no coincidences. Go, no. There are. Yeah. You know, <clears throat> yeah. once what's the famous once is, once is an accident, twice is a coincidence, three times is a conspiracy. <laughs> All right, let me ask you this because we're we're at a minute forty five here, and I want to ask you this because I've been curious about it since I read uh, your great graphic novel. Now, I told you that I had had Mark Seal on. I love his book. I've read all the other books that there are. I've listened to Francis tell the story two different ways. I've listened to Evans tell the story. I've listened to Al Ruddy tell the story. There's something about the the use of the graphic novel medium, and also specifically your illustrator's almost woodcut-like approach. Something about that, and I can't figure out what it is, almost gives us the best version of the making of story 
in a way that I think is about the fact that it's maybe at a remove from even just reading a book that is nonfiction or watching it as a fictionalized version or seeing someone in a documentary tell us about it. There's something about the use of the the woodcut-esque device and the graphic novel device that t- is uh, feels more truthful, even as I know it's still just yet another version of what the truth is. Have you thought about that at all? And do you have any ideas what it is that I might be responding to? A few things. Well, first of all, I mean, it's it's an, an enormous compliment to hear, you know, the way you reacted to it. I also can't, you know, tell you how lucky I was to, to meet and stumble on Alex Ogle. Mm-hmm. You know, we have still never met to this day. But Are you serious? We, we worked together That's and so I made funny. him this insane pre-visualization book because I kept thinking, you know, if you read a screenplay and it says open on the lobby of the same, re- but I, mm-hmm. I, you know, and in this day and age to be able to go online and not just find a picture of what is today Trump Tower, but mm-hmm. literally this is this is what mm-hmm. the uh, Gulf and Western Building looked like in 1970. And I, you know, I sent him all this stuff, and he was he's brilliant, brilliant, brilliant talent. Part of what I think, part of the reason I think it works is the notion of again, like in the same way that Coppola says, this isn't a gangster movie; it's a tragedy. It's a Shakespearean mm-hmm. tragedy. We. You know, I I briefed him and I said, "Look, this is a heist movie. Mm. You know, it's it's okay. Reservoir Dogs. Yeah, it's literally it's Ocean's Eleven. It's Reservoir Dogs. It's this ragtag team of misfits, and they're going to pull off a heist. Mm-hmm. And the heist is making a movie, but it's a heist. And there's a driver mm-hmm. and a second story man. You know, like there's yeah. there's all that analogy." You know, and then in terms of the color, you know, I'll be honest with you, part of the decision was I'm a huge fan of the um, graphic novel writer and illustrator, Frank Miller mm-hmm. and his Sin City books, you know, they're, they're yep. monochromatic. Maybe there's one yep. splash of color. And also it was just, it was also the notion of like speed mm. and economy, yeah. you know, doing things in four colors increases the cost enormously. So I think one of the rules of writing is in a perfect story, the hero has to settle for what they need instead of what they want. Mm -hmm. And sometimes in the creative pursuit, it's the same thing. So for instance, there's the famous Jim Jarmusch movie, Stranger Than Paradise, Mm -hmm. and it's shot in black and white and it's very staccato and it was so stylistic. And whenever someone would say to Jarmusch, you know, how do you arrive at this decision? He goes, because Vim Vendors gave me all of his short ends and they were all black <laughs> and white and there wasn't a single short end that was longer than a minute and a half. So, you know, it's yeah. like, it's making bricks without straw. And um, I think, again, I tried to give each character his his moment. That's what I was going to say. I, as you're talking, I'm realizing you did what all of the other tellings can't really do uh, maybe except Mark Seal's book, because that's more of a overall kind of picture. But your book does give everyone their moment the same way Francis gives everyone their moment in one or even in and two. And weirdly, years ago, I heard this great, you know, I'm I'm sort of like an autodidact. I, I didn't go to film school. I didn't even study writing. I studied graphic design. Mm. But I love, like, again, um, listening to your podcast as like going to film school. 
Um, again, that that notion of you know give the character what they let the character settle for what they need mm-hmm. rather than what they want. And what what I thought here are these four guys, four and a half if you include Blue Dorn. They're completely in over their head. Mm-hmm. Completely. Blue Dorn shouldn't own a studio. Evan yeah. shouldn't run a studio. Right. Al shouldn't be producing this movie. Francis shouldn't be directing this movie. And Mary shouldn't be Kai writing this movie. <laughs> so the only way this is going to work yeah. is if they get the greatest performance mm-hmm. from their cohorts. Yeah. And they give the greatest performance there. But again, like, I need all four of you to be great. You need all four yeah. of us to be great. However, the only way they know how to encourage anybody is to scream at them right. and yell at them mm-hmm. and fight with them. You know, and Evans obviously is the star of the story, at least the story I wrote. He's the only one who confronts each one of them because, again, he is the protagonist. But the scene where he 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 didn't realize that Al didn't understand why mm-hmm. he had to apologize to Charlie. Right. You know, yeah. and he shows that side of him, which he's not manipulative. Mm-hmm. He's just, he just understands people. He and understands he goes, people. Al. Well, I, I, to your, I, I think to the credit of the book, I didn't take away that Evans is the star of your book at all. I, I thought it was very balanced. I guess what I mean is like, and again, this is one of my favorite things I learned. I've, I've, I mentioned I have a twin brother. My mm-hmm. twin brother went to Yale and he's a bigger movie fan than I am. And he sees things I don't see. But years ago he said, you know, he had heard this great thing where the first time you see the character and the last time you see the character, they should be in the complete opposite situation. Mm-hmm. So for instance, in Rocky, which mm-hmm. is my brother's favorite movie, the first time we see Rocky Balboa, he's winning a fight in a broken down gym right. in a falling apart church in you know mm-hmm. the poorest section of Philly. Yeah. But the last time we see him he's he's losing, he's losing a, fight. a fight in the biggest in place the yeah. Philadelphia, right? So so That's a good the one. first time we meet Evans, the mm-hmm. Greek chorus, you know, he's yeah. reading and quoting from Life magazine and that's the actual yeah. opening to the met. You know, everyone in Hollywood is, you know, and by the way he's in Hollywood and the sun is blasting mm-hmm. and but the the Greek chorus is telling him, we, we're not just not rooting for you. If there's anything we want, it is to see of course. you. And at the end <laughs> he reads and, you know, it, what's so fun now is you could, you could track down this, this ephemeral stuff. Yeah. He reads the the review from time magazine. And even though he's in New York in a blizzard, mm-hmm. right. Yeah. So he, you know, in a sense, he is the main character because he is the head of the studio. But, you know, what Charlie had to say, I, 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 and again, I just found the story. The more I researched it, I went, this is truth is stranger than fiction. Well, and I just, I just way, like being, I like being, I'm a contrarian by nature. So I like, if anyone tells me, oh, Evans is the, you know, is, is the, uh, the, sh- the, the guiding light that we're following, then I want to, I want to find the holes that poke in that narrative to how did this, this whole thing occurred to your point. Not because of any one person, it 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 happened. I mean, as so many creative things do happen to us, not we don't will them into being. Um, I think I read somewhere else. You said in one of these interviews about 
that one of your favorite quotes is when 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 opportunity meets the definition of luck yes. is when preparation and opportunity meet. I mean, if any person on any podcast who's talking about something they did was honest, and they never are, very I, I never hear anyone say that this incredible thing that they were a part of simply happened for reasons they don't even fully understand. <laughs> but that's the reality of how any of this stuff happened to anybody, really. And of course, it's Hollywood. You're in the business of myth-making in Hollywood. You're in the business of, if you're Evans, surviving. And you have to settle scores and you have to play that game. You can't be above it or too good for it. You got to get in the trenches and kill people. And you have to do disgusting and dirty things for people. And he yeah. did. And they all did. And, to, and also, though, to his credit, and he goes on the record, like as much as he yeah. takes credit for things that he probably maybe didn't have all the credit, he was always very, you know, like he said, in retrospect, Al Pacino was the only person to play yes. Michael. Yeah, and he I loves categorizing so. all the things he was wrong about, which is, that's oh, well, the great charm which, of Evans. That's that's his. And, and it's it's why I think he becomes so, yeah. you know, beloved. There was, um, I'm gonna, I'm going to forget his name. Do you remember the name of the screenwriter who writes the first in-laws with Alan Arkin and, uh, Oh yeah. I just was reading about that because, Oh, it's, um, it's the, he just died. Yeah. Um, but he, I heard a great Goldman, interview Bo with Goldman. him. Bo Goldman, Bo Goldman, Bo, Bo Goldman, not William Goldman, so, Bo Goldman. Someone says to him, he goes, you know, when you, when you come up with that idea for uh serpentine, where yeah. did that come from? And he goes, <laughs> God, he goes, that's, yes. he goes, honestly, yep. like it popped into my head. Mm-hmm. And I wish I could tell you like this really fantastic anecdote about it, but it was just one of those things. And there was a couple of times where like yeah. the, the, the greatest things he ever wrote, yep. you know, some of the, like when, uh, the generalissimo yeah. has seen his friends, he goes, why do you think that? He goes, God, he goes, yeah. I, I, you know, my mind was a blank and it just crept in. So it, I like what you're saying, because again, I think as much as I admired Evans and I got to meet him having read so much and mm-hmm. hearing everybody's side of the story, you realize like you, you summed it up perfectly. It's like, uh, as much as, and I think what's interesting is you realize why these guys are fighting for the credit, because first yeah. of all, everybody shit on them all yes. the time. The studio <laughs> had no respect for them. The board yeah. had no respect for them. You know, Charlie was going to close down the production. Francis mm-hmm. was going to get fired. Evans thought he was fired. Like yeah. it was just, you know, Al thought Relentless. he was going to get fired. Yeah. And it really is. It's like lifeboat. It yeah. was these five True. guys in a lifeboat and they had to figure out how to row in unison mm-hmm. or they were going to go over the edge. But it is in the same way that have you ever seen the documentary Hearts of Darkness about oh, yes. the making of Apocalypse? I find it a hundred times more fascinating and a thousand times more disturbing because it's not a movie. (laughs) Exactly. You know, when, listen, when I was 13, I had to argue with my parents to to have a paper route. Right. Because I was old enough to have it, Mm -hmm. but I may not have been mature enough to, right? Lawrence Fishburne's parents told him when he was 14, oh, you want to go to the Philippines for a year and shoot a movie (laughs) with a bunch of guys on Coke? Sure. Sounds great. Well, you know, it's funny, time. you know, I think I, I, I say this a lot on the podcast because uh, I'm a big fan of the Bob Lefsetz podcast and listening to a lot of musicians and singer songwriters who to some degree are more in control of their destiny in a way than actors are. Because if you're a singer songwriter, you're singing and songwriting, you're making the thing. Now you, you're subjected to a whole host of other bullshit in an industry that doesn't always support you. But 
more than anyone really in the film business, those people will all say to a person when Leftis asks them, as he always does, tell me about writing this song or that song. They all say the same thing, which is, and, and, and John Fogarty said it best. He's the one who said it first. He said, Bob, I often ask myself, did I write that? Or am I just the one who discovered it? And was it there all along? And when you think about songs and iconic songs, you start to realize there aren't other songs like them. There may be copies or clones after, but the fact that this thing comes kind of fully blown out of somewhere is that God moment that you're talking about or that Bono talks about. And and I think they're more open to embracing that as singer-songwriters because they're kind of at least have that, that conduit of control that you don't really have as an actor. You're not writing. You can't write. I mean, you can write your own stuff and direct your own stuff and put yourself in it, but that's much less common, right? Well, and it also, it doesn't scale, meaning if you and I write a fun song and we record it, even if it's on acoustic and it's mm -hmm. done decent enough and we put it on the internet, it can become the biggest hit in the world. Mm -hmm. It will scale, but it's only going to be about two and a half, three minutes long. Yeah. And it could literally just be, you know, one of my favorite things in the world is um, Graham, I think it's Stephen Stills. He does this acoustic version of... Um, Sweet Judy Blue Eye, mm -hmm. you know, and it's just, it's him and it's mm -hmm. just the guitar and he's, yeah. and you go, this is, it's otherworldly. Yeah. You know, like you could, you could go down the Phil Spectre, you know, the whole yeah. wall of, yeah. it's not going to get better but than you, that. You could look at Neil Young play three chords that you and I could play right now in five minutes, but it doesn't have that thing that he has. Right. And, and yet, you know, again, there's something to be said, you know, I mean, if, if filmmaking isn't the most collaborative medium, mm -hmm. and by filmmaking, I include television because yeah. I think we're living in the golden age of television mm -hmm. now, right? But, you know, the scale of it, like, you know, either either you can afford those great costumes or you can't. A funny example of this thing that someone has in Brando to me is all the anecdotes about the cat in his lap in the opening scene, you know, there's a charisma that actors have that transcends our human desire to be near them and look at them. And I always think that those anecdotes, which is they're shooting at this godforsaken soundstage, you know, in up, upper New York, and there's feral cats roaming around. And this cat just pops up onto the set and just immediately jumps into Brando's lap and won't go anywhere. And the purring is real and it's picking up the mic and the, it's, in, it's on his microphone that's hidden and when they're watching the dailies, like, what the fuck? I can't hear him. The cat is purring so loudly. The cat loves Brando. Like, this is yeah. a real quality <laughs> that he possesses, right? Like, if you if you didn't know who he was and you just stumbled across him, he has that charisma. Yeah. <laughs> like that a cat responds to. The cat is hope is helpless against the charismatic onslaught of the Brando personality. And so are we as viewers. It's just something that they have. You know, there are people that you want to be around. And again, it's like, those yeah. are the people who, that's why they're movie stars. They're movie you know, stars, you see yes. them and you can't turn away. Hey, did you, did you watch the Peter Jackson documentary, Get Back? Oh my God, did I watch it? I mean, I watched it. Right? I absorbed it. I did an episode about it. It's brilliant. So again, that, it's brilliant. like, first of all, you look at these guys and you go, okay, so let me get this straight. They're about to break <laughs> up and John and Ringo are only 28. Paul is 26 mm -hmm. and George is 25. 
and it's 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 already happened. You can't even but believe But when it. Paul starts, you know, he's just playing the baseline yeah. to you know what becomes get back, and you know he goes from just like bebopping yeah. and it's just do do. It's when it becomes alchemy, like without it becoming too pretentious. Mm-hmm. There's something to be said for that notion of it's like it's it's the flash of genius. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen. Uh, we could keep talking for another two hours, but let's save it for the next appearance that I hope you will make on the full cast and crew Listen, podcast. Listen, again, this um, <laughs> I'm a big Howard Stern fan, and he has this incredible knack where he'll ask somebody something really, you know, dicey or intimate, and he'll go, look, it's just you and me talking. And, <laughs> but I know that, you know, at some point this will be out there in the ether, and I'll be honored that it is. But this has just been a fantastic conversation, and you really, you, first of all, you know, you know your stuff. Uh, I wish everyone could see the look on your face as you talk about it because you exude, you know, it's, it's emotional. It's, there's a great quote by Thelonious Monk. He used to say, talking about music's about, is like dancing about architecture, but that sense of like, it it is what it is. It's the stuff we love. And I would, I would be happy to jump in on any other conversation, but this has really been a treat. Well, I've enjoyed it, Ernest. I really appreciate you coming on, and um, I, this is exactly the conversation I hoped we would have. I don't think the world needed another. Here's what happened in the making of the Godfather podcast episode. There's a hundred million of those. I agree with you that you know there's a there's a lot of places to hear that story, yeah. and as much as I enjoy telling it, this is this was a much more interesting and enjoyable conversation for me. Well, I think this is and, all the stuff that is going on in these movies that some, somehow we don't. We don't get to talk about because there's so much to talk about if you're just talking about the incredible story of making the movies is an incredible story. But all these tangential things that jump off are, are what always gets me going. And I think it, it gets you going too. So that's why it was a great Absolutely. match. So I really appreciate it. I thank you so much for coming on and we will do it again soon. Buona sera. Buona sera. Buona sera.